We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2 in a few minutes. If you'd like to turn uh, to the book of Genesis chapter 2 and also Luke chapter 4. Genesis chapter 2 and Luke chapter 4, we'll be looking there. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here this morning, you were uh, blessed, and we'll use that word to start with, to grow up in a small town or a small community? Would you raise your hand? Okay. All right. Look at that. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the best things about growing up in a small town or small community is you know just about everybody. And one of the worst things, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you fill in the blank, you know just about everybody. And when you're a child growing up, that means also what? Everybody knows you. You know, I look back at growing up as a child of the 60s, and I know there was not an internet in those days, but I want to tell you moms and dads were connected. They they were connected. And it seemed like uh, that was a challenge at times because with some of my mischievous ways, uh, there were eyes on me all the time. But you know, as I got older and perhaps wiser, I became to recognize, I came to recognize that really there's a better and higher reason for living the right life and quote unquote behaving, even as you think about your parents. It's not because your parents might find out, but because You love your parents. You love your parents and you don't want to disappoint them. You want to please them. Love puts that in your heart. And John here is writing this letter we call 1 John. And it's called the epistle of love because it overflows with love. The word love is used 51 times, 51 times in these five brief chapters. It's the epistle of love. And he's writing to motivate the believers about what love really does. How love motivates and causes us to respond because of a love for Christ and a love for the Father. True love, not the false love of the false teachers and the Gnostics that he was addressing and warning the believers about. But I want you to notice this morning, as Fred read this passage, John makes a change, he makes a shift from what the love of God does, what it does in us, to what the love of God does doesn't what love doesn't what it doesn't do and our text today just three verses chapter 2 15 16 and 17 the verses gives us some timeless truth about what love doesn't love doesn't that's what I like us to think about this morning and it's just three verses let's let's look at them again would you follow along Love not the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, 
The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And John is saying here, love doesn't. Love doesn't love the world. Because we love, there's a love that we do not share. There's a love that doesn't. Love doesn't love the world. Now, notice he's speaking as a grandfather, great-grandfather to these spiritual children, but he's speaking very firmly about a rejection of loving the world. I want you to notice that first of all. He's speaking about a rejection of loving the world. He says very plainly, verse 15, love do not love the world. Now, he goes on to say, don't love the world, but not even the things in the world. Now, if we are going to understand what John is saying here, we have to make sure we define our terms. Because if we don't define our terms, we can be led away into a response that does not honor the Lord. So we have to ask the question, what does he mean by the world? When John says, do not love the world, what does he mean by the world? Well, when John says the world here, first of all, he doesn't mean the created world. He doesn't mean this creation. Because God created this world. It is our Father's world. He created this world and he's concerned about it and he cares for it with great concern. So when he's referring to the world, John's not referring to the created world. And when John says world, he's also not referring to mankind, the world of mankind. Because all of mankind, even if they do not know God, are yet image bearers of God. And the Bible is as clear as it can be that God loves the world of mankind, right? For God so loved, what? The world. God so loved the world of mankind that he gave, he delivered up his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, possess eternal life. So the word world here, John's not referring to the created world. He's not referring to the world of mankind. So what is he referring to? Well, the word that is translated in our English world is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. Now, for us today, when we even hear the word cosmos, what do we think about? We think about the, the world, the stellar world Beyond our atmosphere, space, the planets, the stars, the solar systems. We think of that, the cosmos. But that is not what the idea is that was original or even what John is thinking about here. The word 
cosmos here has the idea, it literally means order or arrangement. The order and arrangement of the world. The order and arrangement. It has the idea of order and arrangement that comes out of chaos. It's interesting, we get our word cosmetic from that. Order and arrangement that comes out of chaos. I, I won't go too far there with that, all right? This probably shouldn't have gone there at all, even on, even on Father's Day. Order and arrangement. So what's it mean? It means literally the world system, the world system, the world's arrangement, the what's important in the world system, the ethics, the philosophy and morals of the world. And the Bible makes it very clear that world is not our Father's world. That world is in our Father's world, but it is not of our Father. There is a God, little g, that rules over that world system, and that is the enemy, Satan. And that's the reason in chapter 1, when you read about the darkness, the darkness is synonymous with the world. Darkness is the world system apart from the light which is in God. God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. And John tells us in the gospel that the light, the light of God in Christ shined into the darkness. This world system and the darkness has not been able nor will it ever be able to overcome that light. So understanding what we mean or what John means when he speaks of the world, we can also understand why then he is commanding us, listen careful, carefully, he commands us then to stop loving the world. Stop loving the world. Let me pause there for a moment. That's the idea. The idea of the original grammar here is stop loving the world. You might want to not note that in your Bible because it's the idea that there's an inherent tendency in all of us to be loving the world. Uh, there's something in us, part of us, that does want to love the world. It's just like John said, if we sin, yes, we're going to, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we sin, not that we're going to practice it in lifestyle, but if we sin, we can confess our sins to the one who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he is speaking here about the need to stop it, to work against this tendency toward loving the world. Love here, let's make sure we understand this word. What does love mean? Well, again, the word love here is not a word for romantic love. It's not a word for brotherly love. Many of you know of this word. It's the word agape, and it means sacrificial devoted commitment. 
Sacrificial, devoted commitment. Do not be devoted. Stop being devoted to the world. Stop being devotedly committed to the world. Or you might translate it this way. Stop relentlessly pursuing the world. Now this call from John about the rejection of loving the world, listen carefully, is much more than just an exhortation from his heart. Because you're going to see the next thing he says in verse 15 is this is not just an exhortation from his heart, it is also an examination of our hearts. It's a love exam. It's a love exam. John says that our affection for the world reveals the condition of our hearts. The affection for the world reveals the condition of our hearts. And that's the second thing I want you to notice. He talks about the revelation of loving the world. The revelation of loving the world. Look at verse 15. He says, this is the revelation. And folks, be very focused here. This is going to be a very unique Father's Day focus here just for a moment. This is a Father's Day focus. Verse 15. Stop loving the world or the things in the world. If anyone is loving the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's the revelation. Love for the world and love for God are not just in conflict. It's even deeper than that. Love for the world and love for God are not just in conflict. They are diametrically opposed to each other. Loving God and loving the world are diametrically opposed to each other. Loving God and loving the world are mutually exclusive. You cannot be loving the world and loving God. This is very similar to what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. But he was speaking not about the world in general, but a specific aspect of the world. But Jesus said the same thing. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve, what? Two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other... Or he will hold to, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus did not say it's difficult to serve God and money. Jesus said they they are mutually exclusive. They are diametrically opposed. If you want to live for money, you cannot live for God. Now, money is not good or evil. The problem's not the money. The problem is the devotion of the heart. You cannot be devoted to money and devoted to God at the same time. They are mutually Exclusive. That's what 
Jesus said. Now, John and Jesus are saying the same thing, except John even goes more personal. John makes it even more personal when he connects the love for the world system and love for God the Father. He, he makes the Father connection. Now, let's let this settle in. Now, this is the, the Father's Day moment here. We're talking about the Father, the Heavenly Father, and we're talking about the love for our Heavenly Father. Let's let this settle in for a moment. Let's, let's make sure that we don't go beyond too quickly what John is saying here. He is saying if you live your life focused on the things of only this earthly life, you don't know the Father. John is saying, listen carefully. If you make your daily decisions, you make your daily decisions without regard to what the Heavenly Father desires, you don't know the Father. John is not saying that a person like this is worldly. A worldly Christian. He's not describing a worldly Christian. He is saying this is what it means to be lost. To be without Christ. To yet be under the judgment of God. It is revealed in the life of a person who makes his or her regular, daily decisions without any regard to what the Heavenly Father desires or thinks. That person doesn't know the Father. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he said this. He said, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. This is one of those test brothers and sisters as we sit here in church. This is one of those tests. It's not a test of what church I joined. It's not a test of where I grew up in church or denomination. It's not a test of any experience that you had in the past. It's not a test of a confirmation. It's a test of possession. It's a test of reality. In my life, not perfectly, none of us, none of us do this perfectly. But can I say in my life that, that it is very regular for me to think of my life and to pause and say, God, what do you think about this? What, what do you have to say about this? What would my father want me to do? What, what would Jesus, my Savior, want? 
A life that doesn't have that sense on some basis of looking to the Father, looking to, the, to Jesus for direction and discernment, that is not faith. That's not Christian. That's to be lost. Now, friends, I just believe this is a moment. It's not the close of the service, but it's a moment of response. And so I'm going to ask you right now, would you bow your heads with me, please? Please bow your heads and close your eyes. And I ask you to do that only so there's no distraction. Examine yourself, whether you're in the faith. Test your profession. Is the, is the character of your life one that you want to know what God wants? You want to know what Jesus wants? Do you regularly think about your plans in light of Jesus? Ask the Lord to reveal that truth to you now. Ask, ask the Lord. Pray right now for His clarity. And if you know, yes, yes, you know that's there, then thank Him for the work of His Spirit. Praise Him. Make this a moment of worship right now. Thank Him that He's changed the affections of your heart. But, oh, friend, if you leave the church every Sunday and Jesus is not on your mind, the Father's not on your mind Monday through Saturday as you make your decisions, your life plans something's desperately wrong pray that the Lord would change your heart pray say Lord give me a new heart Lord regenerate my heart renew my mind Lord transform my values Lord give me new affections Lord I plead with you right now right here Change my love. Father, I pray over this, this moment and I pray that your spirit will bring assurance, will bring revelation and bring freedom and bring life and dispel False confidence. But may our confidence be, I cling to the cross. I cling to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, Lord, help me. I desperately need you to take over the affections of my heart. For your sake. For Jesus' sake. Through the power of the Spirit, God's people said, Amen. Now, at the close of our service, maybe you'd like to come like some did after the first service and say, could we just pray about that? Could we talk about that? Elderly John 
the apostle is definitely speaking plainly. He's speaking firmly about the rejection of loving the world and the revelation of loving the world. But then he's like a caring father and he's going to show his reasons. <laughs> you know, on Father's Day, I, I don't know if you've done, I think all of us, maybe his dad's one time have done it, that kids will say, why, dad? Because what? Because I said so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that feels good for about a millisecond. <laughs> and then... <laughs> The Holy Spirit said, what did you just say? What came out of your mouth? Father, a loving father is going to tell you why. As you're able to understand, here's why. Now, here's the reasons for not loving the world. John gives two reasons. Two reasons for not loving the world in verse 16. These two reasons. First of all, because of the source of the world system. What is the source of the world system? Well, look at the first phrase of verse 16 and look at the last phrase of verse 16. The first phrase. For all that is in the world. Last phrase. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. Put those two together. We'll talk about the middle in just a moment. All that is in the world, all that is in the world, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now again, this does not mean that God did not create the world. He created the world. But listen, all that is in the world is not of the Father. All that is in the world is not of the Father. And the Lord wants us what? To be people truly in the world, but not what? Of the world. Reason number one, because of the source of the world system. It doesn't come from the Father. It is life apart from the Father. That's what the world is. It's life lived apart from the Father and His nature. Second reason he says that we should not love the world is because of the specific nature of the world system. The specific nature of the world system. It's not of the Father, but how do we recognize it? Well, how do we recognize the world system? How do we see it? And even more importantly, how do you feel it? How do you know when it's there? And then how can we deal with it? And that's what our final minutes are going to be about here. Defining the world system. Secondly, describing the world system. And then thirdly, defending against the world system. We're going to do define it, describe it, and how to defend against it. Let's define it. But we've got to define it the way the Bible defines it. What is the world? Look at verse 16. Three phrases. The world is what? The desire, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's the world like? How do we know it when we see it? How do we know it when we feel it? Number one, it is sensual desires, the desires of the flesh. Now, let's be careful here again. If we're not careful, we swing too far the other way. Oh, if it's, not, if it's the desires, sensual desires are wrong, then I've got to go over here and I, I can't have anything that has pleasure. I can't live for pleasure because pleasure would be sinful. That is not right. Who created pleasure? God did. Who created your senses? God did. 
When it says sensual desires, it's not talking about the pleasure that comes from your senses. It means the desires of the flesh. The flesh is that old part of you that's not yet been regenerated. You've been given a new spirit, but you still have this old person. You still have this old computer. And it's not been totally wiped clean yet. It's not been replaced with a new operating system completely yet, but thank God it will one day in heaven, right? But we live in this flesh, and so what this is, this, the sensual desires here, the desires of the flesh, listen carefully, is the cravings of our fallen human nature. It is the selfish, sensual satisfaction. It's when I want to satisfy my senses Apart from God. That's the desires of the flesh. Sensual desires. Then he talks about the world is visual desires. Visual desires. The desires of the eyes. What's this? This is the cravings of our fallen nature. Stimulated by what we see. Stimulated by what we see. It's the selfish craving desire to acquire things we see, to have them as our own apart from the will of God and what is of God. We crave things that we see. The whole marketing system of the world is based on this. And then thirdly, there's, the world is egotistical desires, sensual desires, visual desires, egotistical desires it's called the pride of life the pride of life it's interesting this word pride here very unique the way it's used the word pride here alazon alazon means literally a braggart who doesn't have something to brag about (laughs) so the the lust of the the pride of life rather is the boastful Pride, empty self-gratification and glorification. It's puffing yourself up, making yourself big when you know that you're not big. Trying to make yourself look what you know that you're not. This is the pride of life. Now, that's how it's defined. What's it like? What's it feel like? Perfect description in the first temptation. You want to know what it feels like, what it's like? It's just like this. It's just like what Eve experienced when she was tempted by Satan. And you find that in Genesis chapter 3. And if you like, you can turn there. If not, it's not hard to find in your Bible provided page 2. (laughs) but you know the story Adam and Eve paradise perfect father perfect environment they're perfect one imperfect sinful evil being comes into paradise this is Satan takes the form of the serpent He points out to Eve the one thing that God has forbidden. God has given all 
of the creation. It's all yours. Everything, it's all yours. Enjoy it. Enjoy me. Here's one test, one pledge of allegiance. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. And what is it that Satan points out? All the freedom Eve has? All the liberty she has? All the riches she has? No. Points out the one thing that God has forbidden. Verse 6. Here's what happened. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food. Stop there. She saw the tree was good for food. That's the desire of the flesh. Can't imagine what that would taste like. Wouldn't I love to sink my teeth into that? And then she also noticed, verse 6, that it was a delight to the eyes. I've never seen anything so beautiful. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's perfect. I would love to have that. Why can't I have that? This is the desire of the eye. And then she noticed it's also desired to make one wise. After all, it's the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Why shouldn't I know what God knows? Uh, maybe maybe this, the serpent's right here. Why shouldn't I know everything my father knows? Maybe he is holding back on me. The pride of life. I'm not all I could be. I could be more. I deserve to be more. This isn't fair. That I should be limited to such a life like this. Satan put Eve's focus on her one limitation, not on the paradise of freedom. He turned her focus away from all she possessed. She, get, she bit into that fruit and she gave it, it says, to her husband who was with her. Listen carefully. Adam was not way off yonder. He was standing right there. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. My friends, Satan's tactics have never changed. Never. Never. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is his MO. He has never changed it. Why? Because it's always worked on the sons and daughters of God. He's not going to change. But guess what? This can be defended against. How do we defend against Satan's temptation? Who are we to stand up against this evil that has existed for eons of time? Who are we 
to stand against the brilliance of the shining one, Lucifer. Well, guess who showed us the way? Big brother. Jesus, who is the second Adam. And he is going to face the same test that the first Adam and Eve faced. But he's going to show us how we stand against it. Luke 4. Luke 4. Verse 3. The devil said to him, now him, this is Jesus. Where is he? He's in the wilderness. 40 days. He's been led there by the Spirit. 40 days without food and water. Preparing for the beginning of his earthly ministry. And after 40 days, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. See this insinuation, if. If you really are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. What's he tempting Jesus with? The desires of the flesh. He's hungry. You can do this. You can turn this stone into bread. Yes, he can. But not in the will of God. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What's he tempting Jesus with? The desire of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms and the glory of the world that was in his dark domain. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God and him. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to the Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest part of the temple, uh, Jerusalem, looking from the very pinnacle of the temple down into the court of the nations and looking off into the Kidron Valley below. Showed him that and said, Now, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And isn't this interesting? The devil can quote scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Yes, he can quote scripture, but he's taking it out of context and twisting it. That's what the cults always do. It's the tactic of the leader of the cults, which is Satan. Twisting scripture. 
And Jesus, verse 12, answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is this? The pride of life. Everybody will look at you. You don't have, you, you can show yourself to be Messiah. Do it this way. You don't have to keep on the self-denial. It doesn't have to be like this. Manifest yourself. Go to the temple. Cast yourself down. Let them see the angels bear you safely. This, what a manifestation this would be of you, the Son of God. Pride of life. Focus everybody's attention on you, Jesus. Jesus didn't come to focus the attention on himself. He said, I've come to glorify God, my Father in heaven. How did Jesus respond? How did he respond? The word of God. Did Jesus have to respond that way? No. You know what Jesus could have said? He could have said to Satan, you go to hell. And he will say that to him one day and not just say it, but send him there. Because that's where he's going. But Jesus could have sent him there then. But that was not the father's plan. His plan right then was for his son to show us, the spiritual sons of, and daughters of God, how we can do spiritual warfare, how we can stand against the enemy. How do we do it? What is his weapon? The weapon of the devil is what? The lie, because he is a liar and the father of it. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. That's his weapon. But what's his weakness? What's a liar's weakness? Truth. And friend, let me tell you something. Now get it straight. It's not your truth. Oh yeah, you're going to stand. I'm going to stand before the devil and say, listen, I'm going to speak my truth. I heard that in a commercial. I'm going to speak my truth. Oh, and Satan's going to go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. We got to leave this, this one alone. He spoke his truth. Are you kidding me? You could sooner put out the flames of hell with a squirt gun than you can do anything with the devil in your truth. It's not your truth because your truth isn't truth. My truth isn't truth. This is the truth. And Satan hates the truth. Why? Because God is truth. Because he's light and in him is no darkness at all. And Jesus reached for the same sword that you and I have, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and he stuck it to the devil. And that's what he wants us to do. You can't argue with the devil. You can't reason with the devil. You can't think... Well, let me have a discussion with the devil. How'd that work for Eve and Adam? Now, I know what some are saying beyond saying it's time to go. <laughs> but I do want to share this with you. I know what some are saying, and you must hear this. 
Satan is lying right now. In this room, he is lying. And some of you are going to go from here, and you're going to go to your management training seminars, and you're going to hear lies. Some of you are going to go to classrooms, you're going to hear lies. Some of you are going to have to read textbooks, and you're going to hear lies. Some of you are going to go to career help seminars, and you're going to hear lies. Some of you are going to turn on TV, and you're going to hear lies. You're going to listen to your favorite songs, and you're going to have your mind filled with lies. And what is the lie? The lie is this. You've got to live in the real world. You are a Christian. Sure, wonderful. You're a Christian. But you've got to live in the real world. And the answer to that is yes. God wants you to live in the real world. But this ain't it. Why? Verse 17 of our text. The world is what? Passing away. It's temporary. It doesn't last. There's there's nothing to it to sustain. This glory of man is fading away. We see it fades. It's gone. It's gone. I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the Temple Mount. The glory is gone. I've been to Athens. I've seen the glory of Greece on the Acropolis. It's gone. I've been to Rome. I've seen the glory of Rome in the Roman Forum. It's gone. And sadly, yes, you can stand in Washington, D.C. today. And the glory of America is fading away. This world is fading away. What is the real world? The real world is in this world it's the kingdom of our God. And there is a king. His name is Jesus. And that is the real world. The real world is the world you'll be living in a million years from now. This world is a temporary existence. How foolish it is to be a soul that's eternal. And to live your life for only a fleeting moment of this false passing parade of selfishness that we call the world. Well, you're going to be told this. Well, you've got to, don't you want significance in your life? Don't you want significance? Oh, yeah, be one of those kind of Christians. Go to church. Pastor beats you down. Some of the others beat you down. And the rest of your life, I'm just a poor, lonely Christian. I'm just suffering on. Woe is me. But I got heaven one day. But until then, woe is me. It's no fun. I'm going to have fun someday, but not now. No, no. Oh, my word. Are you kidding me? Significance. I'll give you significance. Look at the verse. Verse 17. He that does the will of God. What? abides forever now that's significant what you live for today that will matter a million years from today that's pretty significant but i'm going to tell you something your significance isn't following the hearse you're not pulling it in a u-haul behind your hearse your significance is in the will of god what is the will of god one word Love. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the will of God. And I want to tell you, that's significant. And that lasts. And that is what love does. Love doesn't love the world. Love does the will of God.